Good morning. When the 16, am I on? Thank you. When the 1631 edition of the King James Version was hot off the press, they discovered there was a word missing. It was obviously an important word because they called this translation the Wicked Bible. And Archbishop Laud was so enraged, he fined the printers the equivalent in today's money of several million dollars. The important word that they left out was the word not in Exodus 2014. So in the midst of the Ten Commandments, it read this way, Thou shalt commit adultery. Now, perhaps that was a pre-Freudian slip, because we still have people today who are editing that seventh commandment, only it's not accidental. Dr. Donald Granbold, professor at the University of Texas at Arlington, surveyed 262 marriage counselors. Of those counselors, 78% thought that when a wife has an affair, it doesn't jeopardize the marriage. And 98% of those counselors thought that when husbands have an affair, it doesn't jeopardize the marriage. Not surprisingly, 40% of the counselors admitted that they themselves had had an affair. So we've got the blind leading the blind, and we are falling into a ditch. Due to the deceitful nature of this sin, there's no way to have accurate statistics. But according to the Journal of Couple and Relationship Therapy, 60% of men and 50% of women will have an extramarital affair at some time in their marriage. And since those people are not all married to each other, that led to the projection that 80% of all marriages will be fractured by adultery. Now, I hope that's as shocking to you as it is to me. And that's why as we talk about the fruit of the Spirit being faithfulness, I don't apologize for committing an entire message to being faithful to your wedding vows. Or as we might entitle this message, how to affair-proof your marriage. We live in a culture that mocks the idea of sexual faithfulness, either to God prior to marriage or to your spouse in marriage. It's viewed today as an archaic and unrealistic expectation. But despite what the current consensus may be, God has called you to be faithful. And so this morning, I want to give you five ways to be faithful to your spouse. Number one, magnify the covenant. When you were married, you entered into a covenant relationship with your spouse. And we need to magnify that. We need to make that large.
Unfortunately, people tend to read their divorce agreement more carefully than they read their marriage agreement. That's why if I've married you, you know that I require that you write your own vows because I want you to know what you're signing up for. And if you're married here this morning, I want to remind you of what you did sign up for. God established the nature of the covenant at the very first marriage in Genesis 2.24. And we read this, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now notice three things about marriage. Number one, the priority of marriage. You leave your father and mother. The primary relationship you have growing up is that relationship to your father and mother. At the point of marriage, you leave that behind to join your wife. And that tells me that marriage takes the priority over every other relationship on a human level. Your priority is no longer to your father and mother. And your priority is not to your children. Your priority is to your spouse. Secondly, I want you to notice the permanence of marriage. It says you leave father and mother, and then it uses the word you cleave. That's a word that means to stick with like glue. Marriage is not a commitment that you make until somebody better comes along. Marriage is till death do us part. And if you are married, you have made a covenant to be faithful. And that covenant is not like other human covenants or human commitments or human vows because it's unique in the sense that God has joined you together. That's why Jesus said in Mark 10, 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Marriage is permanent. You say, but damn, we're not compatible. Nobody's compatible. You say, but we have problems. Everybody has problems. You can't take two sinful people and put them together and say, all right, now move in harmony through life and not have problems. Life is all about problems. Read 1 Corinthians 7.28. It says, if you marry, you will have trouble. That's a promise. You see, the key is in the midst of those problems, you are to be coming together rather than coming apart. Marriage is permanent. And then thirdly, the purpose of marriage. It says they shall become one flesh. Now I want you to notice something. When does the sexual union take place? After the bridge to mom and dad are burned, after the walls of marital security are established and the glue of commitment is in place, then there is physical intimacy. Our world says the opposite. Experiment with sexual intimacy and see if you're compatible. What does God say? Make the commitment 
And then that sexual intimacy is the expression of that oneness in your relationship. Marriage is so intimate that you become one flesh instead of two. And he's not simply talking there about sexual relations. He's talking about the fact that you become one physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Someone has said marriage is a romance novel. And in the first chapter, both the hero and the heroine die. And they become one new person. You see, that is the purpose of marriage. And that's why we read in the very next verse, Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Now that's not simply a fashion statement. I think there God is using the lack of clothing as a symbol to show us that in that relationship there were no barriers There were no secrets. There were no walls between them. Nothing was hidden. And there was no shame before God or before each other. They were completely together. And the sexual union is the expression of that oneness. That's why the Bible refers to sexual relationships with the term knowing. In Genesis 4.1, we read, And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. See, sexual intimacy is not some casual thing. It is synonymous with knowing someone on the most knowingest level. It's the expression of that deepest form of unity, deepest form of oneness, deepest form of commitment. So if you're going to be faithful, you need to magnify the covenant you have made in marriage and understand that sexual intimacy is the expression of your oneness. Second way to be faithful to your spouse is measure the consequences. Most people assume God is prudish. That God is some kind of cosmic killjoy. But let me remind you that God thought up sex. It's his idea. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, it says he put Adam and Eve in the garden and they were naked and God said, it's very good. He established sexual intimacy. He wants you to enjoy it. It is very good. But having said that, let me say this. It's only good in the context of the marriage bond. And when you get it outside of that context, it brings dire consequences. And that's why God put the word not in the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And God's prohibition there is not to bring you pain. It is to bring you protection. It's like the sign at the top of the exit to the interstate that says, do not enter. I don't know about you, but I don't resent that sign. I appreciate that sign. Because it's there to protect me. It's the same with this prohibition. See, God created water. You can't live without it. 
but if you get too much of it, you will drown. God created fire, a great gift to us. It can either warm you or it can burn you. God placed in you that sexual desire, properly controlled before marriage and expressed inside of marriage. It is fulfilling and wonderful. But outside of marriage, it is destructive. In fact, there is nothing that damages like sexual sin. Let me just remind you of some of the consequences. Number one, it's a sin against God. It's breaking His commandment to you. And God has posted this sign throughout Scripture. If you look in the Old Testament, there's only one prohibition that is more stated than you shall not commit adultery, and that is you shall not commit idolatry. And in the New Testament, it is the number one prohibition. A prohibition against adultery. It's a sin against God. David found that out too late in Psalm 51.4 when he prayed, against thee and thee only have I sinned. It's a sin against God and he doesn't take it lightly. In fact, 1 Corinthians 6.9 says that adulterers shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It's a sin against God. Secondly, it's a, it's a sin against your own self. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 says, Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. It's an interesting statement. Sexual intercourse was uniquely designed by God to express the physical and spiritual unity of a husband and a wife. So to be involved sexually with someone else is not just skin deep. You are giving part of yourself away that you can never get back. And there is no sin that will cause more personal damage than this sin. Physically, psychologically, and spiritually. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 32 says, But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment Whoever does so destroys himself. You hear a lot today about safe sex. Let me clarify that. There is no such thing as safe sex outside of marriage. It is unsafe because it destroys you. You cannot make adultery safe. It's a sin against yourself. It's like Esau who sold his birthright for a bowl of Quaker oats. For that moment of pleasure, he threw away the blessings of God. Adultery is the same way. For a moment of pleasure, you throw away the blessings of God. And it destroys you. Rather than promoting safe sex, we need to promote sacred sex. Hebrews 13.4 says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Third consequence. It's a sin against your home. Listen to this quote. It's by Robertson McQuil McQuilkin in his book, Biblical Ethics. He says, infidelity tells your child, listen, your mother is not worth much. 
and your father is a liar and a cheat. Furthermore, honor is not nearly as important as pleasure. In fact, my child, my own satisfaction is more important than you. Wow. We don't think about it that way, do we? This is a sin that destroys your home. It is a total betrayal of your spouse, and it brings irreparable harm to your children. Fourth consequence. It's a sin against your church. 1 Corinthians 6.15 says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. You say, my personal sex life is none of your business. Yes, it is. Because we are part of the same body, the body of Christ, and you are taking members of Christ and associating them in immorality. It's a sin against your church. And then fifthly, it's a sin against your world. And that really fits in with the context of what we're talking about. How do we make a difference in the world? When you commit an immorality, what you are saying to those around you that know you who are lost, you are saying to them that the gospel that I'm telling you about, that you need in your life, Christ who needs to save you from your sins, doesn't have the power to control my sex drive. You are destroying your witness to the world around you when you succumb to immorality. So if you're flirting with adultery, you better measure the consequences. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against yourself. It's a sin against your home. It's a sin against your church. It's a sin against your world. Now let me clarify something. Because Jesus said in Matthew 5, 28, everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now just because Jesus said that we can commit adultery in our heart, I don't want you to jump to the conclusion that there's no difference between heart adultery and actual adultery. Because a lot of people say, well, I've already done it in my heart, I might as well do it in my actions. There's a big difference between heart adultery and actual adultery when you consider the consequences. But having said that, let me say this. When you don't address adultery in your heart, you are just one opportunity away from adultery in your actions. James put it this way in James 1.15, then when lust has conceived, it, brings birth, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There's the equation, LSD. Love, or lust, sin, death. And he presents it in the form of giving birth. He says when you allow lust to, to dwell in you and you you, you dwell on that lust and you dwell on that lust, it impregnates you. And eventually you will give birth to what you're thinking about in your actions. So when you dwell on lust and you allow lust to abide in your heart, James is saying it's only a matter of time 
until it shows up in your actions. Paul Harvey told this story about the way an Eskimo hunts down a wolf. He says, first the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. A blood popsicle with a knife as the stick. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh blood. He begins to lick lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his cravings for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. Lust operates the same way. So if you are going to be faithful to your spouse, you better measure the consequences. Third way to be faithful to your spouse is to maintain the closeness. Maintain the closeness. The closer you are as husband and wife, the less likely it is for one of you to stray. And so you need to be close. Now the problem with that is, it's like the title of that popular book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. She's very different from you. You have to watch the man who says he understands women because he will lie about other things. (laughs) But see, if you're here as a husband, you don't have to understand all women. You just have to understand one woman, the one you're married to. 1 Peter 3.7 says, You husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding way. I heard about one husband who called a therapist and said, I don't know what to do. My wife thinks she's a piano. He said, well, then bring her in for an appointment. He said, are you crazy? you have any idea what it costs to move a piano? I like that joke. That's a guy who was understanding his wife. See, nobody else may understand her, but you need to understand her. Willard Harley wrote a book entitled His Needs, Her Needs. In it, he lists the five most basic needs of men and women. What's interesting is the difference in those two lists. At the top of the man's list, of his five most basic needs is sexual fulfillment. Guess what? It didn't even make the women's top five. So what a man sees as his basic need, a woman doesn't see that way. 
her two top basic needs were these, affection and communication. Which tells me what your wife needs starts in the morning, not at night. What your wife needs starts in the kitchen, not the bedroom. What your wife needs starts with her emotions, not her body. And when you as a husband start to fulfill your wife's needs, it means you will talk with her more, you will listen more, you will compliment her more, you will date her more, you will embrace her more as a simple display of affection. She will not only get your undivided attention at 10 o'clock when you want intimacy, she will have your attention all through the day. So husbands, you have to be a student of your wife's needs so that you can meet them. And as you meet those needs, you will become closer and closer to each other. And in that process, you will be developing oneness You will be getting to know each other. And when you are maintaining that closeness, you are building faithfulness. Alan Alda's wife put it this way, it's real easy to leave your spouse. It's not so easy to leave your best friend. Fourth way to be faithful to your spouse is minimize the chances Let me give you some ways to minimize the chances of this happening. Number one is flee. This is the primary way the Bible tells you to deal with this temptation. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, it says flee immorality. In 2 Timothy 2.22, it says flee from youthful lusts. Don't put yourself in the circumstances where this kind of temptation comes to the forefront. Now, one of the most challenging places is the office. Some of you men are not getting along with your wife, and you go to the office, and everybody in the office looks good, everybody smells good, they get paid to be nice. You don't see her at home with curlers and diarrhea. You need to establish some guidelines for that situation. Some of you travel in your work. It's a very challenging thing to travel. We need to be like Daniel, who when he arrived in Babylon in Daniel chapter 1, purposed in his heart to be faithful to God. He set up some guidelines for how he was going to be faithful to God. If you're traveling, that's a very vulnerable situation to be in some other town in a hotel room. Maybe you need to go to the front desk and say, hey, unhook the the movie channels. I don't need that stuff. You get in your room, maybe you need to put a picture of your wife and kids on top of the TV set so you remember who you're committed to. You need to be calling home regularly. You need to be establishing guidelines. I'm not going to be alone in my hotel room or any other room with someone of the opposite sex. For some of you men, it's the internet that's your biggest problem. If that's a problem for you, you need to take that computer 
and put it in a public area where people can see what you're doing and not in a private area where you can close the door. Or you need to throw it out entirely. You say, well, Dan, that's pretty radical. Well, I would rather go overboard than be thrown overboard. And this kind of temptation requires radical actions. Number one is flee. Number two is choose your friends carefully. Who are your friends? You see, your friends can either be an encouragement in this area or they can be a detriment in this area. I don't know how many times I've, I've had guys sit and tell me, you know, the guys at work say I should ditch my wife. And I say, well, what are you looking for advice from the guys at work for? So you need to have friends around you who are speaking truth into your life, who are a model of faithfulness, who challenge you to remain faithful, who confront you when you compromise in this area. And then thirdly, guard your mind. There is no such thing as a one-night stand. It is a process. It's a whole series of events. And it begins when you do not guard your mind. What do you read? What do you watch on TV? What do you think about? What do you listen to? A great verse for you is 2 Corinthians 10.5. It says we're to be taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every time a thought comes into my mind, I can't help that. That's temptation. I need to capture that thought and take it to the obedience of Christ. When you allow that thought to come in and dwell, what does it do? It starts to produce that series of things that leads to immorality. You see, the battle is won and lost in your mind. Job took that seriously. In Job 31.1, he said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. The eye is the window of your mind. And Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to let that happen. He took it seriously, and you need to take it seriously and minimize the chances of unfaithfulness. And then the fifth way to be faithful to your spouse is make the commitment when I say make the commitment, I'm talking about a commitment to purity in your life. Make the commitment that you're going to be pure. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Make a commitment to be pure and then discipline yourself to accomplish that. Let me give you four ways to discipline yourself in this last point. Number one, real simple, seek God. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Keeping yourself free from immorality is not just a matter of focusing on the negative. I'm going to run because there are bad consequences. The other half of that verse says you're to run and you're to pursue something. You are to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace 
along with those who are calling on the Lord from pure heart. You see, I don't only want to flee immorality because there are bad consequences. I want to turn around and pursue with those who are calling on the Lord from a pure heart, the Lord himself. You see, sexual sin and impure thoughts are an impediment to you seeking God. You say, I'm trying to seek the God, God with my whole heart, and you've got a closet over here where you're hiding sexual immorality in your life. It blurs your vision of God. You need to get rid of that stuff so that you can seek God with that whole heart. I think that's why Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You see, when I get my heart pure, my spiritual vision becomes clear. When I'm involved in sexual immorality and thoughts about that, it clouds my vision of God. So number one is seek God. Number two area of discipline is develop a divine awareness. As believers, we're often ignorant of God's presence. We're kind of like Jacob. You remember in uh, Genesis 28, 16, it says he awoke from sleep and he said, surely, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. If you're going to go through life ignorant of the fact that God is present in your life, you're a pawn for immorality. We need to be like Joseph when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. What did he say? How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Third area of discipline is memorize Scripture. Memorize Scripture. A lot of adults tell me, I'm too old to memorize Scripture. Memorize Scripture. What did Jesus do when He was tempted by the devil? All three times, He quoted Scripture which tells me he was memorizing Scripture. If Jesus needed to memorize Scripture, duh. The psalm writer says in Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And then let me give you a fourth area of discipline. And that is, and this is so important, establish accountability. Give someone who you trust, another guy if you're a guy, another lady if you're a lady. Give them the freedom to hold you accountable to the commitments that you've made to your marriage. Someone who will sit down with you on a weekly basis and ask you tough questions about what you've done. And you'll be honest with them. Someone who will help you toe the line and keep your heart faithful to God and faithful to your spouse. Nine eleven wasn't the first Islamic jihad attack on Americans. In fact, in 1983, the U.S. Marines were stationed in Beirut, Lebanon, as a peacekeeping force in the Lebanon Civil War. Early on a Sunday morning, a suicide bomber drove a truck 
through the barbed wire fence surrounding the Marine Corps barracks and detonated an explosive device equal to 12,000 tons of TNT. That building was leveled and 241 American Marines, sailors, and soldiers were killed. There were only a handful of survivors. One of the Marines pulled from the debris was Lance Corporal Jeff Nashton. He had been terribly injured in the explosion and was blind. He was airlifted to a military hospital in Germany. General Paul Kelly, Commandant of the Marine Corps, went to visit Corporal Nashton in the hospital to present him with a purple star. When he walked into the hospital room, General Kelly later said he had never seen that many tubes coming out of one man and that he looked more like a machine than a human being. General Kelly introduced himself, but blind Corporal Nashton didn't believe he was really a general. He thought they were playing a trick on him. And so he grabbed the general's collar to feel for stars. And he felt one, two, three, four stars. And then he released the general's collar and did his best in his condition to salute. He was unable to speak because of a breathing tube, but he motioned for a piece of paper and a pen to write. And Corporal Nashton scribbled two words on the paper and showed it to the general. He wrote, Simplify. Short for the Marine motto, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. That rough, tough general said he felt tears rolling down his cheeks when he saw this soldier's condition and read those two words. Others claimed it was the only time they had ever seen the general cry. He saluted Nashton, and then he reached up and removed the four stars from his collar and pressed them into the corporal's hand. And he said, here, son, you deserve these more than I do. Let me remind you that on your wedding day, you made a vow to be simplify, always faithful. In times of peace and in times when suicide bombers are attacking your marriage, And you need to realize that being faithful isn't cheap. Being faithful may cost you everything. And to understand that, you simply have to look at your commander-in-chief, Jesus. To be faithful to you and me, it killed him. But let me tell you this, whatever it costs you, it's worth it. It's worth it because of two things. One is his promise. When Jesus comes back, he's going to say, well done, good and what? Faithful servant. There's a promise from Jesus when he comes back, if you're faithful, he's going to say, well done. But not only is it his promise, there's also a principle in Scripture, or let's call it a paradox in Scripture. And that is you find your life by 
losing it. That's a principle that applied to the Lord Jesus. We're going to take communion. We're going to remember that he gave his body and his blood for you and me. He laid down his life so that he might produce fruit, which is you and me, for the kingdom of God. When you give up your life, you find your life. That is true in your relationship with the Lord, but guess what? It's also true in your marriage because the Bible says that marriage is the greatest human picture of God's relationship to us. Jesus being the bride, the church, or Jesus being the groom, the bride being the church. So in your relationship with your spouse, when you as a husband lay down your life the way Ephesians 5 says you are to do, when you lay down your life the way Christ did for your bride, you actually find fulfillment in that relationship. You find yourself by losing yourself. When you are always faithful, you will reap the blessings not only in your relationship with your spouse, but ultimately in your relationship with the Lord. Simplify. Is that you? Simplify. Always faithful. Always faithful. If you're serious about being faithful to your spouse, You need to apply the principles that we've talked about today into your marriage. Because most people that I talk to who fail in this area tell me I didn't see it coming. I look at it and listen to their story and say, you should have seen it coming because it was right there at your doorstep for so long. We're going to take communion together. I'm going to pray and we're going to take it. But as we do today, the Bible says you to examine yourself. And I want us to examine ourselves in this particular area today of faithfulness to our wedding vows. And say, God, I'm going to be faithful. Whatever it costs to be the husband, to be the wife that you've called me to be. Because Jesus, you are our example as our groom who is totally faithful and always will be. Let's pray and then we'll take the bread and the cup together. Father, thank you for Jesus who paid the ultimate price out of his faithfulness to you and his faithfulness and his promises to us. Lord, thank you that because of his death we can have life. And Lord, as we take the bread and the cup today, I pray that it would not just be a matter of us saying thank you, but for us to apply that to ourselves, to realize that we are also called to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. We are also called to lay down our lives for our spouses. And Lord, I pray that we would take that seriously today as we take the bread and the cup to go from here as different people more committed to you and more committed to our vows. In Jesus' name, amen.